0: Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden. I'm your host, Åsa.
1: And I'm your other host, Chris. Now this is going to be another episode of political intrigue all around the Baltic Sea and it's going to involve some rather strange developments in relation to the crown of the Kalmar Union.
0: Indeed it is, but first let's hear today's Swedish phrase, which is courtesy of one of Chris's colleagues. The phrase is... Nu blommar i asfalten.
1: Indeed it is, and this means now it's flowering in the tarmac or in the pavement or in the asphalt.
0: Yeah, and it just means that something strange or surprising has happened since you know, flowers don't usually grow in tarmac or concrete. If it's flowering in the tarmac, it means that something unusual has happened. There's a version of the phrase where we say uh, nu blåmar now the onion is flowering. And that's sort of along the same lines, that that isn't something that usually happens. So it's a surprise or a strange occurrence.
1: Yeah, so uh, thank you to my colleague Yuan. Uh, I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure he doesn't listen to the podcast, but thank you, Yuan, anyway. We uh, he's an ex journalist, so we always talk about Swedish phrases and things like that. And I asked him about something in particular, and then he said, "Oh, you like Swedish phrases? Have you heard of this one or something?" So yeah.
0: Yes, thank you very much, Yuan. And if this is one of the zero point zero zero one percent chance that you might listen to an episode thank you very much for taking the time to do
1: so but now the Swedish phrase is out of the way a little bit of uh warning for this episode also has been sick all week and uh, we're just about recording this in time to uh fit in with the regular release schedule so uh if also sounds a bit weird that's why
0: I was gonna say if I sound weirder than usual uh <laughs> well. with my sort of Swedish English accent and way of speaking but yeah I I started 2023 Uh, I had high hopes for the new year, had a great New Year's Eve, we were over in the UK, and then we came back to Sweden on New Year's Day, and BAM! Struck down with a cold, and I've been uh, coughing and sniffling and being generally quite miserable for the last few days.
1: You've been in sort of self-imposed quarantine inside our flat, sleeping in the other room.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it doesn't help, uh, not that there are people who enjoy being sick and enjoy having a cold, but... Not only do when I get sick, do I get physically sick, I also get incredibly emotional, so it's been a bit of a dreary start to the new year, but I'm finally feeling better. And we're also kind of keeping an eye out the window throughout the recording of this episode because it is really snowing in Stockholm.
1: Well, yeah, we've got a load of snow. But uh, speaking of snow, we also hope you enjoyed our episode on Swedish symbols where we went live on site to the Christmas goat at Jävla. Uh, I know a load of people have messaged us saying uh, that they Really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah, that was great. And he made it this year, the goat or she. I don't know if it's a he or a she, but. It survived Christmas, which is great.
1: Yeah, they've been messaging and tweeting all about it, the official Twitter account, and uh, we were tweeting about it as well. It, sort of, it survived five of the last six years, but before that it had only survived a dozen times in the last 55 years, so it's on a real streak at the moment.
0: It's on a good roll. Let's hope it stays that way. But what are we going to start the new year with in the podcast?
1: Yeah, we're going to pick up where we left off in the last chronological episode before that special episode. And that was where we covered the history of the Teutonic Order or the German knights after they invaded Gotland. We covered their early history and we saw how they went from a German merchant's hospital in the Holy Land to becoming a crusading religious order and then really kind of just a power-hungry mob of European knights who were intent on claiming whatever land they could get. This led to them spending decades and decades trying to conquer parts of Poland and Lithuania. Back in Sweden, we also saw the final culmination of the conflict that had been part of our narrative for quite a while now, when King Albert officially surrendered the right to the crown of Sweden and the Hansa returned Stockholm to Margareta and King Eric.
0: Yes, and to make things even better for Margareta and Eric, the traitorous Sven Sture surrendered his pirate fleet and their castle strongholds north of Stockholm to the crown, with Bjørjöns Jonsson Grip's son doing the same with his castles in Finland, meaning the crown, was well and truly back in control of all parts of the Union. Sven Sture was miraculously pardoned, despite it mainly being his fault that the Mecklenburgs kept control of Gotland, which led to the invasion by the German knights, as very magnanimous to forgive him.
1: Indeed it was, and it's on Gotland where we will continue the story for a moment. We're still just about in the 14th century, in 1399 to be exact, and the grandmaster of the German order, Conrad von Judingen, is trying to find a way to legitimise the order's control over the largest island in the Baltic Sea. And he actually finds some help in the form of Duke Albert, ex-King Albert, who by now is certainly looking for some cash after all of his shenanigans over the last couple of decades.
0: Oh, I didn't think we'd see Duke Albert again.
1: Well, he's still around.
0: So vaguely happy that he's back in the story. Anyway, they come to an agreement in May of that year in what was called the Treaty of Schwan. Duke Albert would sell the island to the Germans for 10,000 nobles, the German currency. Or actually, he was pawning it. Like a lot of these transactions were in the Middle Ages, they were pawning it. This essentially meant that Albert would still own it, but the order owned the right to run it, rule it, and basically do whatever they wanted with it. It was only Albert's on paper. And actually the total compensation was agreed to be 30,000 nobles, not just the 10,000, but Albert agreed with Conrad that the German invasion and ridding the island of the pirates, well, that was worth 20,000. And as this had already been paid, it made the rest of the bill 10,000. Hopefully that makes sense.
1: Yeah, hiring their services to rid Gotland of the pirates cost 20,000. And since they'd already done that, that was uh, what they needed.
0: Yeah, and pay Conrad and the knights did. Albert would have the first right to buy back the island for the same amount. And if Grandmaster Conrad should be accused by others of legal actions concerning the island, Duke Albert and Duke Yuan of Mecklenburg, well, they had to defend him publicly.
1: Yeah, this was put into the contract that they had to sort of stand up for him. The main problem occurs quite obviously from the fact that Gotland wasn't really Albert's to give away to begin with. As remember, there was this Treaty of Lindholmen back when Margareta was dealing with Albert, and they had agreed that King Albert would look after Visby, and Margareta and Eric would get the rest of the island. So, yeah, even if you could still claim that Albert had a claim to Gotland, it still should actually technically only be Visby, not the whole island.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's playing it rather fast and loose here. I mean, he's no longer king of anything in Scandinavia, and he's sitting down in Germany giving islands away.
1: Exactly, and this naturally caused tension between the Order and the Kalmar Union. Margaretha demanded that the island be fully surrendered to her as the rightful Queen of Sweden, but soon agreed that she would eventually have to negotiate over the status of Visby. However, it wasn't going to be that simple. The main problem is relayed by historian Carl Ferdinand Schmidt. Thus, by the terms of the Treaty of Schwann, the Grand Master not only possessed Gotland de facto but also de jure, at least so he believed. Soon he realized that this was a great self-deception.
0: Self-deception indeed, as Konrad realizes that Albert yeah, didn't really have the right to give away the whole island. What follows is essentially three and a half years of legal arguing between Margareta, Albert, and the order. Margareta tries to get the order to return Gotland, with the order saying that uh, no, technically it isn't theirs, and they ask Albert to explain the situation, which he keeps coming up with excuses for not really having time to do so. He, no, I'm busy folding napkins today. He keeps skipping meetings and things keep going backwards and forwards for years. Marietta appears to be extremely patient dealing with this frustrating shadow of a man, but eventually her patience would run out, but more on that later.
1: Yeah, we've seen uh, throughout the podcast how negotiations are pretty much always just a way to waste time. And this is exactly what's happening here. But as we said, back to that later on. But for now, we're going to continue on with a few other events as we head into the new century. But right before we do that, one old acquaintance wanted to write the final line in the chronicle of Swedish history for the 14th century. And that was Novgorod. Oh. Now, it isn't the most accurate or potentially reliable of sources, but a German chronicle written by an unknown author says that Novgorod set out to attack Margareta in the end of 1399.
0: Yeah, it's not super reliable, we don't know what actually happened, but it's good to see Novgorod back in the game. The chronicler suggests that the attack focused on the north, up in Lapland and northern Finland, where Novgorod and now the Kamar Union had that sort of no-man's-land style unclear border because it was so remote and and sparsely populated. But the attack apparently caused enough fear down in the town of Reval to the point where all the citizens retreated and closed the city walls.
1: I wonder how long they kept them closed before realising nothing was actually happening. A few hours, days, months, because as we'll see, it's a long way away from where this supposed fight was going on.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is also a bit random that Reval, which is in Estonia, it's today called Tallinn, wasn't even in Sweden. So... They were either just really scared for some reason, or the story is complete bogus. The Novgorod Chronicle doesn't mention this attack or any conflict with Sweden at this time, but like pretty much every year what it does mention is a big fire.
1: Yeah, it seems like something is always burning down in Novgorod. There's so many times where I've been reading it, trying to find information for a war with Sweden, and they say, oh, and this thing burnt down, and this thing burnt down. And I think we mentioned it once or twice before, but uh, seeing as we might not use the Novgorod Chronicle again, we're not entirely sure if it will come back again. We thought we'd just quote this this fire one more time.
0: So, because if we did a History of Novgorod podcast, the episodes would be... Fire, fire, war with Sweden, fire, fire, war with Sweden, fire, fire.
1: Pretty much. (laughs) And so this one, partly because it's greatly written, uh, let's read up this one. And it says... The same year, for our sins, a fire broke out in Lubyaniska Street, and the Carpenters' Quarter was burnt up to the Fedor Stream, and the whole Slavno Quarter was burnt, and twenty-two churches were partially burnt, and five side chapels and one wooden church, and how many persons were burnt, God knows, and some were drowned in the Volkhov on the day of the holy martyr Memnon. So fierce was the fire, with a hurricane that it swept burning over the water.
0: I mean, that is pretty dramatic. I also like how they kept a very close tally on the infrastructure burning down, but then just going, how many people? Eh, God knows. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just human life. Yeah, uh, but
1: 22 stone churches were partially burned. <laughs> this is important information we need to know.
0: Oh, poor Novgorod uh, indeed. I know I'm making light of all the fires they had, but that's really not nice at all
1: yeah it's mainly making light of the way they write about it because it's quite amusing um but yeah seeing as there's pretty much no more information about this supposed novgorod attack in northern sweden and finland we should probably move on and move on into a new century just like in real life we've moved on to a new year and that means we say hello to 1400
0: yeah i mean this is pretty cool new century uh, 1400s it means that we've covered about 400 years of quote-unquote real history now when it comes to individual dates of kings and battles and whatnot, uh, if we count from when Olof Skötkönung came to the throne in roughly 995, and Sweden started to sort of more properly form as a nation-state. And it has been a pretty complicated journey, I think we can all agree, but there has been one thing that has been pretty constant throughout this 400-year period, and indeed even before that.
1: Royal infighting and battles amongst siblings?
0: Yeah, that is pretty constant, but that's not what I'm thinking of.
1: A rivalry between Denmark and Sweden?
0: Again, not what I was thinking of. What I was thinking of, which is what I always think about is tasty tasty herring.
1: Oh, well, yeah, I guess that herring had to come up as we've just eaten loads over Christmas, but at least the curry flavored and the mustard herring is okay, I guess. Um, It's more the texture that I don't really like, I guess.
0: Now, because the turn of the century isn't particularly notable in any other way, I mean, I'm sure the people who lived at the time celebrated it, but not much else happened that year We thought we would take a few moments to talk about herring, and particularly the herring trade down in Skavonne.
1: Yeah, and we're doing this right now rather than at any other moment because of one of those random quirks of history and when records survive from. It just so happens that we have the herring trade records from Lübeck for 1398 to 1400, meaning that we can put all of this previous conflict of the last decades over Scorner for the economic and political control there and the herring market that, that was so important there into a bit more perspective. As we've seen, the control over Skorna isn't just important because of the strategic, military and political location, but it's mainly the economic control over the herring markets of Skorna that was so important for any prospective ruler in the region.
0: To put it in numbers, they were fighting over the estimated 5,000 marks of annual income that the Skorna herring market brought, and that's just from the customs duties – There were obviously a whole bunch of other taxes, fees, and bribes paid to be able to be one of the herring traders. But as we'll see, it wasn't exactly an exclusive trade. This was huge business and involved so many
1: people. And not even just herring, but other traders knew that loads of traders were attending the markets in Scorner, So they went there and, you know, they knew that the sailors would need new sails or whatever. So it became a hub not just for herring, but other trade too.
0: The occasional cod slipped in.
1: Wow, yeah, from some Norwegian trader would come down with Norwegian cod, maybe. But it's mainly the herring that's the draw. So we thought we'd dive into the herring trade for a moment. Not literally as that would stink, but dive into these records that have survived. And so in 1400, a total of 16,594 barrels of salt were exported to the herring market in Skorna from Lübeck. That's, of course, that's how the herring was preserved and prepared for their sometimes lengthy journeys around Europe to whichever kitchen table they would end up on. They were salted and preserved in that way. Heading the other way to the salt was about 70,000 barrels of herring, all undertaken by approximately 800 merchants who took them back to Lübeck. The herring trade then between Denmark and Lübeck was worth around four times the total trade between Lübeck and all of Sweden, so they're trading a huge amount with just scorner down in Denmark.
0: I mean, Lübeck must really love herring, even more than I do, I wonder how many herring you can fit in a barrel. I mean, they're quite small. It's got to be thousands of little fish in one barrel.
1: Yeah, at least hundreds. And these are big barrels because, remember, the merchants of the Baltic Sea liked stuffing captured pirates into the barrels if they managed to capture any alive. So they're at least human-sized. Now, every year between 300 and 400 large ships, which were mainly the medieval cog trading style vessels, and about 300 smaller fishing vessels, sailed to the herring market to do business. And it's quite hard to even picture this in your mind. But if you are trying to picture this in your mind, one way to do that is hear a description from someone who was there at the time. A French crusader and politician called Philippe de Mesurès was travelling around northern Europe in the autumn of 1364. Coming through the Urusson Strait, what he and others sometimes called the Sound, meant coming right through the great herring fishing areas around Skorna.
0: Luckily for us, this Philippe wrote an account of his travels and the description is so good, we're going to read it out in full. This is from his... Le Song de Vielle Pellerine, pardon my French pronunciation. Cambridge University Press says that his account is highly stylistic, but contains much personal observation and historical fact. So there's no reason to discount his description. I'll make a start. Two months of the year, that is September and October, the herring travel from one sea to the other through the sound by order of God in such huge numbers that it is a great wonder and so many pass through the sound in these months that at several places one can cut them with a dagger. By long custom, every year ships from the whole of Germany and Prussia gather in great companies in this arm of the sea to catch the herring. In each ship there are at least six people and in many eight, nine or ten.
1: It is a common belief that about 40,000 boats do nothing else during these months but fish herring, and in each boat there are at least 6 men, and in others 7 to 8 or 10. Besides these 40,000 boats, there are 500 ships of big or medium size which do nothing else but collect and salt in barrels the herring fished by the 40,000 boats. There is a great gathering of people to catch such a small fish. If you count them, you will find that during these bumps no less than 300,000 people do nothing else but fish. When I was going to Prussia by sea in a big ship, I, an old and tired pilgrim, passed through this arm of the sea in fine weather and in the herring season, and I saw the boats and the large and small ships and ate herring that the fishermen gave us.
0: That must have been such a mind-blowing sight, to see so many boats and people in one place the herring is said to be so thick in the sea that you could just stick your knife in and grab one like harpoon a tiny fish
1: (laughs) that's amazing there's so many
0: and i've heard other accounts of that you know there being so much herring that you could walk on them and so on and so forth and Even though we can assume that it's probably a bit exaggerated, it goes to show that, you know, they wouldn't have styled it that way if there were one or two fish in the sea. Remember, this is a time when cities in Northern Europe were relatively small places compared to today, so clearly everyone was down in sköna fishing herring, far more people than there were in all of Stockholm, for example. Now, as Professor Carsten Janke of the University of Copenhagen says, this number of 40,000 fishing boats is definitely an exaggeration, but he says it can be assumed that at least ten to 20,000 boats were employed there in the Scania Herring fisheries at this time. And I mean, I grew up on the Skeona coast. Even ten to 20,000 boats would be a sight to see today.
1: Yeah, for sure. About 100 years later, in 1523, the Lübeck representative, reporting back home from the Scorner town of Falsterbo, counted exactly 7,515 fishing boats at the harbour there, and we know a good year of fishing in the 14th century would lead to around 300,000 barrels of herring being exported, and we've mentioned so many times that up to potentially one-third of the Danish monarch's income comes from the Scorner herring market alone, so yeah, whilst the exact numbers might be slightly exaggerated. This is huge, huge business, and everyone is getting involved in one way or another down in Scorner.
0: Philippe is, of course, not the only famous or important person to travel through this area and to witness the herring trade. He wasn't even the only crusader who passed through the sound on his way to Prussia. It was in fact one of the main routes for nobles on their way to the crusades in Prussia when the Teutonic Knights were fighting Poland and or Lithuania. One person was the Earl of Derby who made a stop in Helsingor in 1390 and then in Copenhagen in 1391 on his way to the killing fields of Prussia.
1: Yeah, so this is certainly a well-known place and the Earl of Derby has said stuff about it too. So yeah, people are seeing this going on and they're amazed about it. And because it's a huge business, there's a lengthy rulebook for people to follow if they wanted to play a part in this game. We're now going to read out just a few of the rules that the merchants had to abide by during Margareta's time. Uh, We've actually got all of them, basically, but there's too many to read out. So we've we've done a flat-pack history of Sweden editor's choice of these uh, merchant rules to read out.
0: No, that would almost be an entire episode in itself. But here's a few of them, including their number in the list. Number four. We order every man with balances and measures to weigh correctly and give the merchants full measure. Anyone caught with false measures will pay with his life. Rule 14. No man is allowed to place the stakes which he uses to dry his fishing nets so close to the road that carriers and merchants are hindered. Penalty. Three marks, or the loss of the nets, it is ordered that the king's public highways shall be free. Rule 16. No townsman or carrier must carry a herring in bags or baskets, under penalty of losing the herring he carries.
1: Rule 18. Every carrier should take care that the goods of the merchants are well kept, so that he can answer for it. If he's not able to, he shall lose his life. 24. Anyone arrested with armour or cuirass or bludgeon, crossbow hatchet or other weapons with which he can hurt the merchants or harm them shall lose his life. And 26. We order all captains that no one is to salt fish in their own ship, under penalty of 40 marks.
0: I mean, you can see that this is a carefully designed system with, I must say, harsh penalties There's a lot of death penalties there for something that you might consider as small as herring. But yeah, it's a carefully designed system to make sure that people follow the rules and clearly and deliberately spread the wealth around to all people in the system, and of course to the customs collectors. No salting in your own ship is to make sure that you can't sneak a few extra herring through the system without... The people noticing and taking the right fee, of course.
1: Yeah, and it was designed to be efficient and ensure the trade kept flowing. Just like today, the king's public highways shall be kept free. Uh, you can't stick a sign up for Chris's kebab shop in the middle of Oxford Street or in the middle of the road outside your house, and you can't keep drying your nets right next to the road in the herring market and block the way there either. It's all very sensible, because being sensible means more herring and more profit for everyone involved, and cheating with false weights, for example, means you're killing. So this is serious business.
0: Yeah, really. And it puts into perspective all that wrangling that Margareta, the Hansa, the Mecklenburgs, that they had over the Skåne castles and the taxes and everything else which took place over the last couple of decades. Monarchs tended to not be rolling in cash at this point, so they had to collect every single coin they could from these lucrative markets. Marietta is no exception, and as the new century begins, money is tight. Uh, Looking behind the many, many sofas she had, that, that didn't help because the sums just didn't add up.
1: Yeah, you didn't have to work in accounting like Orsa's mum to be able to see that the kingdom needed more money and needed it fast. Margareta had quite a lot of work to be done to try and fix the country's finances. She thought that new taxes might at least help, so that's what Sweden is going to get. A new heavy tax called the 15 mark help is placed on farmers. We've seen how a lot of these taxes in Sweden are sometimes called a help or a yelp in Swedish as that's sort of their goal to try and help fix the country's finances. This new tax was only really possible because Margareta had been spending a lot of time fixing what she saw as the mess created by King Albert and his generous handing out of crown lands to new members of the nobility that he had created. That meant she'd begun a legal process called a REFST, essentially a report and an analysis of everything that Albert had done, from knighting his supporters to selling off crown land. As a result, we saw in previous episodes, she'd declared all these new knights illegal and demanded they pay fealty to her and pay financial penalties if they wanted to be re-knighted by her. But this REFST, or report, meant that she also fired all the crown bailiffs, those royal officials looking after things like castles and towns, and these were the ones that Albert had appointed, and so she replaced them with her own.
0: In quite an interesting move, she created a traveling land reform unit that went all over the country to review land ownership to make sure that whatever Albert had given away in so-called illegal transactions was returned to the crown. This meant that the people living on the lands were now taxable and that money was to go towards helping repay the massive debts Sweden had. I mean, they were still trying to pay off some of the loans King Magnus had taken back in the early 1300s to fight his wars against Novgorod in Finland. So this debt is really piling up.
1: Yeah, he's taken out a few payday loans to try and pay for this all it means that this is a pretty bad time for the Treasury, and especially so considering the Kalmar Union is now actually facing increased pressure from the Pope to contribute to a new crusade he wants, and we all know how expensive those are. Now, there's a tiny bit of background needed here before we get into this whole debate. If we remember way back to the start of the history of the Teutonic Knights, after they left the Holy Land, they were actually briefly based in Hungary, where they were fighting against Islamic invaders from Turkey. Well this invasion has been going on backwards and forwards throughout the decades, and is in fact now, in the 1400s, escalated to the point where influential knights across Europe feel a real crusade is needed to go to Hungary to fight the Turks. A travelling French knight who saw the herring tray, that Philippe, he actually wrote a letter to the English king, who by now is Richard II, and urged him to stop the petty fighting going on in Europe and make peace with France so they could all focus on the real problem and go on this new crusade.
0: In 1395, European knights had gathered to go to the aid of King Sigismund of Hungary against the Turks. Sweden certainly had much more to focus on back then, and the crusade itself was completely destroyed outside of Nicopolis in September of 1396. But Philippe wasn't to be dissuaded and tried to create one final grand crusade which would include a Scandinavian attack on Constantinople before meeting the other knights who had attacked from the west and then all head together to Jerusalem. Because this idea was so unrealistic, it never happened. But there was still massive pressure on Margareta to commit to helping the European campaign against the invading Turks.
1: So Margareta has to come up with some sort of excuse why she can't help out, and we know she definitely can't afford it. So Margaretta actually does something rather clever. In early 1401, she wrote to the Pope basically bemoaning the geopolitical situation of her realm and saying things were falling apart. She complained that she was surrounded by water on all sides and easily accessible for the neighbouring countries, meaning that pirates and raiders were constantly attacking the shores of Denmark, Norway and Sweden and burning, pillaging and killing. We know that this was certainly true to an extent, perhaps a decade before, in the heyday of the Vitaly pirates, but by the time she's writing this letter, things have calmed down a bit.
0: Despite that, she claimed she had no real way to successfully defend her Triple Kingdom unless she received some help immediately. Amazingly, the Pope agreed and commanded the archbishops of Lund, Uppsala and Trondheim to preach a crusade against all of Margaretha's enemies, whether Christians or pagans, in 1401. This is pretty remarkable. As Kurt Jensen points out, these crusade privileges in Denmark were unique As they were also aimed at Margaretha's Christian political enemies, rather than heathen pagans, which are usually the ones who fight crusades again. And the letters didn't even go on to say that these were the wrong types of Christians, or that they were committing heresy.
1: This broad definition for this crusade was probably the reason why the Pope's letters were never turned into an official crusade. But Margareta and subsequent Scandinavian rulers will use this sort of semi-approval from the Pope that there were masses of heathens gathered ready to assault Christendom in the north of Europe. And this was why the Kalmar Union was standing ready and was too busy to go off anywhere else because they're standing against this tide. And this is going to be the standard excuse to why they don't have the time or the resources to commit to a crusade against the Turks. So it's quite clever, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, Margareta is essentially wrangling a sick note from the Pope, and this sick note would be pulled, like Chris said, for essentially the entirety of the 1400s. Whenever a new crusade was started, or kings and princes around Europe asked for Scandinavian help against Islamic invaders, well, they just said... Can't, too busy defending ourselves from all these uh, heathen enemies we have around us.
1: Look, the Pope said we've got enemies up here, so we're too busy, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can imagine that after a few decades, people must have gotten tired of this excuse. Despite this, though, the Pope still send a monk to the Kalmar Union, as well as places like Lübeck in northern Germany, to gather troops and money for a crusade against the Turks in the same year, but it seems like everyone in Scandinavia stuck to Margrethe's heathen invasion possible line and no one headed off down south.
1: Yeah, so basically from now on we have to keep in mind that this is going on in the south of Europe and we promise we will return to Christian military matters in the near future, especially to check in on the Teutonic Knights. Now, as King Eric had come of age the previous year, 1401 was the year for him to take part in the great ceremonial procession he'd presumably been looking quite forward to for a while now his Eric's literally Eric's
0: Yes Eric was about to ride his Eric's around the country and have all the regions proclaim him king and welcome the new monarch to their own county or town It's always fun when the king is actually called Eric and then goes on an Eriksgotha, which is the case this time round. We will come back to some other fancy events later in Eriks' life, but this is one of a number of big formal occasions for Erik in a relatively short period of time. The first, obviously, being his coronation as King of the Three Countries. The Eriksgotha is a much longer ceremony, of course, because you go around the whole country. It took time as each town had to swear loyalty to the king and take part in some ceremony or another.
1: Yeah, and this was a journey all around Sweden. It's not a Danish or Norwegian thing. So it's, uh, you know, because he's king of these countries individually, he has to take part in various ceremonies in in the various countries. And this is a a Sweden-focused ceremony for him.
0: It is. And even though the current king of Sweden, he did his Ericsgård back in the early 70s, And the next monarch, Crown Princess Victoria, when she becomes queen, will have to do the same whenever she ascends the throne. It would have been fun to see one in the age of medieval pomp and ceremony.
1: This is sort of the peak of this medieval era where it's not becoming quite modern yet with sort of rifles and things like that. But it's yeah, this is peak medieval time, so it would have been fun to see it. And speaking of places where it would have been fun to see the procession, a few places the king presumably travelled to were the towns of Vardsteiner, famous for the abbey there, and Falsherping and Boy. These three towns were all founded the previous year, or at least granted their letter of privileges by Margareta, so they were officially a town on paper, even though the buildings would obviously have been there before, and vardsteiner has been there for quite a while now. And this meant they were able to claim benefits for trading and taxes and all that kind of stuff. And it also goes to show the continued power of Margareta, as she's the one issuing these privileges to these towns, it's not Eric. I think we mentioned this previously, but towns in Sweden that end in the word Sherping were market towns, with Sherp being the word buy. And so some towns like Linsherping, Nysherping, and now Falsherping are all places that would have been hubs for trade. This new Falsherping is no exception. Now, as we don't really want to start a whole new story or event right now at the end of this episode, it's probably time to wrap up for a bit. Next time, we will come back and continue the story of Gotland and the Teutonic Knights, as well as maybe, if we have time, cover a story that's so crazy and weird that an entire film was made about it recently. It's a big event.
0: Oh yeah, that will be really fun. Before we go, though, we've got a few more messages to read out, as well as some reviews.
1: We do indeed. And first, we've actually had a great podcast recommendation from our listener. Uh, Ava got in touch to say that if people want to know more about the history of the madness down in Poland and Lithuania, she'd listen to a great episode of half Assed History, a podcast that's been on my to-listen-to list for ages, but finally got round to it the other day when Ava recommended it. She said they did a great episode on Jadwiga, the girl who was crowned king of Poland during this time. Uh, That's a bit of a, a teaser there for why you should go listen to it why it's so interesting we didn't have time to mention her too much in our summary of the history of Poland that we did but if you do want to go and find that episode and give it a listen the podcast is Half Asked History and it's episode 168 Jan Viga of Poland Uh, I was listening to it I think maybe even on Christmas Eve Uh, I was listening to it over Christmas and it's a really good episode so thank you so much uh, Eva for getting in touch and letting us know about the episode it's really good and uh, look out for us on the the tube in Stockholm as uh, you live quite near us say hi
0: Speaking of super interesting, listener Erik went to the History Museum in Lund recently and saw a cool timeline of Danish king's coins from the exact time of this podcast it was just in time for him to have a listen to episode 47 so if you're also in lund go to the museum and check out that timeline of danish coins it looked really cool
1: oh yeah eric uh, sent in a picture of the all the coins in a sort of a timeline of, of one coin from each of the kings so it looks really cool and i haven't actually even been to that museum yet so uh next time we're at your parents we should uh, go and have a look
0: Definitely. But now for some reviews. Do you want to make a start, Chris, with one from Maple Leaf Aussie in Australia? And it's from iTunes.
1: Yeah, so some connection to Canada there with uh, Maple Leaf Aussie. And uh, they say, excellent and entertaining, five stars. This is a highly engaging podcast exploring the history of Sweden. The hosts are knowledgeable and well-informed and present the information in each episode in a manner that is interesting and entertaining at the same time. I'm currently listening to the 21st episode, and while I feel as though I'm starting to get to know Chris and Orsa, each episode is still fresh and exciting. Highly recommended. That was posted at the end of November, so if you're caught up to the current release schedule, thank you so much. Or whenever you listen to this, Maple Leaf Aussie, thank you so much for sending us uh, that review. Thank you so much.
0: Yes, thank you very much. And then we have another review from Sweden this time. Pictures not showing, five stars. I love your podcast and I can say I am addicted to it. Every day on my way to work and back home, I listen to this amazing podcast. Before finding it, I was kind of disappointed since all of the podcasts about Swedish history were in Swedish and I could not understand them. But when I found this perfect flat pack history of Sweden in English, I was so happy especially because it is explained chronologically. It could not be better than this. Thank you for your perfect work. One thing that I am struggling with is that the pictures of the episodes do not show. I listen to the podcast on the podcast app on my iPhone. Could not resolve this problem, which is really annoying. Thank you so much. That was from Seema Vahid via Apple Podcasts. Yes, that is really annoying.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning that, Seema. Um, we don't listen to our own podcast um, on Apple Podcasts or anything. Uh, I listen to them on the computer when I'm editing them and stuff like that. So uh, we haven't actually seen that until now that you mentioned it. And- And I've spent a while trying to sort this out and can't seem to get it to work either. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the problem is in the system. I've done some Googling and searching and stuff and can't really seem to figure out why it's not working. But luckily, all of our pictures are posted on our website. There's a page called Episode Pictures on our website, www.aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. And we usually post them on our social media too. Um, So whilst that doesn't solve the problem of them not appearing on iTunes they are out there and they're usually up to date when we release an episode uh, I usually upload them sort of some point the next couple of days sometimes before sometimes sometimes just after so they are all out there but um, yeah it's weird why they're not showing up for you.
0: Yeah and um, there seems to be nothing we can do on our end it seems to be a software problem so yeah
1: Yeah, at least uh, as we know. I will do some more Googling uh, this weekend and have a look, but um, no promises, unfortunately.
0: With that said, we should conclude this episode and say Happy New Year to those of you using our calendar system and hope you have a great 2023.
1: Yep, Uh, looking forward to another year of podcasting fun and uh, Chinese New Year when that comes around uh, Mm. next soon. So unfortunately, I don't think we'll celebrate that here. Uh, I had a friend at university whose birthday was always Chinese New Year, so we always had a Chinese New Year-themed fancy dress party. And one year I went as a snake. I think that was the year, year of the dog or the rat that year.
0: That's cool. When I lived in Scotland, so Chinese New Year sometimes coincides with Burns Night... Uh, which is sort of Scotland's uh, unofficial national day. It's not uh,
1: where you go around setting fire to things and burning things. It's for Robbie Burns. Exactly,
0: the poet Robbie Burns. But obviously, Chinese New Year plus uh, Burns Night becomes Chinese Burns. So you just <laughs> hang out with your friends and uh, do Chinese Burns uh, on on their arms.
1: Oh, I haven't done a Chinese Burns in ages. I think I'm need to do one on you. Uh, Prepare yourself. Okay, well, let's conclude
0: and so I can run out and hide uh, from Chris's Chinese burns. At
1: least you can go outside and uh, put your arm in the snow and that will cool it down from the Chinese burn.
0: Help! <laughs> if you want to get in touch, maybe send a message and see how I'm doing after the Chinese burns. You can do so on Facebook or Twitter or send an email to sweden at gmail.com.
1: And with that, we'll see you in two weeks' time, and hopefully also hasn't coughed her lungs up by then. Goodbye. Hey, Laura.